Welcome to the First Century Church Podcast. My name is Stephen Wilhoy, and I'm the lead pastor at First Century Church, and it is an honor to have you with us today. The goal of the podcast is simple. We want you to be encouraged, challenged, and inspired to go further in your faith than ever before. If you'd like more information about the church, you can visit our website, firstcenturykc.com. And if you happen to be in the Kansas City area anytime soon, we'd love to have you join us for one of our live gatherings to connect with you in person. Again, thanks for joining us today, and we hope that you enjoy today's message. So let me ask as we get started today, are there any couponers in the house? Anyone? No? Okay, a couple. All right. I remember about 10 years ago or so, th- this was all the rage, was couponing. It was the thing to do. I mean, there were TV shows about it, there were blogs about it, there were news articles about it. You know, you could go online, look at how to make your own coupon, like, binder, you know, to put the, instead of baseball cards, we're going to put coupons in these things. And, you know, there'd be stories on the news of, like, these people that would, they would double stack and triple stack, and they'd have a whole stack of these things. So they'd take an hour to shop and take two hours to check out as they have to beep every individual coupon that day and then add up how much it's worth. And then in the end, you know, they'd get, like, $800 worth of groceries for, like, $7.99, $7.99, you know, not $799. It would be a very good coupon. It was $1 off your $800 purchase. Um, so we, we've seen those kinds of stories uh, with couponing and that sort of thing. And we are going through the Bible this year as a church chronologically from beginning to end. And one of the reasons that we're doing that is to see that there are themes throughout the entire Bible. Sometimes we think about the Old Testament is totally different than the New Testament. It's not. It's part one, part two, seamless transition. Everything makes sense. Everything flows. The things that we read about later on near the end were always there in some way at the beginning. And so we're seeing some of those themes, and we'll see one today on Easter Sunday. We're going to continue right through this study. Today we're going to be looking at the Old Testament prophet Isaiah, and today we're going to be looking at the theme of redemption. Now we don't use that word redemption a lot in non-religious types of circles, except for with coupons. That's what the connection is today. So today we're going to talk about coupons in Christ. That's our Easter sermon today, coupons in Christ. We're going to see how these two things go together with this same theme of redemption. Redemption is the same thread woven throughout both of these ideas, and that's what we're going to look at here today. With coupons, there are two parts of this. There's an exchange in that, right? You have to give the coupon over so it's redeemed so you get the value for whatever's on that coupon. That's the exchange that is made. That is the, I give and I get. And life with Christ, the life that Jesus offers us, is the exact same way. So not to seem like a pitch man or an infomercial guy, I'm going to first tell you, with this exchange of redemption in your life that Jesus offers this Easter, uh, first we're going to talk about what we get from this exchange. And then we'll secondly, as we close, talk about what we give in this exchange. So there's a lot of benefits. Like we may not think about a life in Christ or a life of faith as like getting a lot. There are a lot of practical benefits to a life lived in Christ. There are a lot of things that we get. And the first one that we'll look at may not seem all that important, but it's actually very foundational to how we live life. So the first thing that God offers us in this exchange of redemption, this, the offer that we are given here is identity. It's the first thing, the the key thing, the foundational thing, I believe, that Jesus offers us. So let's look at this first verse. Isaiah chapter 43, verse 1, says this. This is God speaking through the prophet Isaiah in the Old Testament. He says, But now, thus says the Lord, 
He who created you, O Jacob, he who formed you, O Israel. And then here's what God says. Fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. This is a theme that we've seen a few times in our study so far through the Bible, is the fact that for the Old Testament Jewish people, their identity is completely and solely in their God, in their faith. It is not so much an ethnic group as it is a religious group, okay? Now, they're, they're, it bleeds over, but their identity is not in where they're from or their nationality because God called them way before, I mean hundreds of years before they ever had their own nation, they still had an identity. They were God's people. He chose them for a specific purpose. He even says it here, I've redeemed you, I've called you by name. Identity in our lives is extremely important. Like, to know who you are matters. To know what you were created to do is a big thing. And it's something that all of us search for. Every human who's ever lived has searched for identity, for their true meaning. But there's a couple of problems with this being so important is that many times we don't know what that is. Like even people my age still in their 30s don't know what their identity is. They, they search and they try to figure it out and they're confused and they don't, what is it? What am I here for? Who am I really? At the very core of who I am, what does that mean and why does it make any difference? It's such an important question and like important things tend to be, it's very difficult to figure out. And with that difficulty comes the pressures of our culture, the pressures of the age in which we live, the time in which we live, which whether it's intentional or not, our culture tries to get us to focus our identity on things that aren't really that important in the grand scheme of things. So for instance, our culture will say that your status in life is really who you are. And so when you finally achieve a certain zip code, or you finally have a house that has X number of bedrooms or X number of garage doors on it, then that's who you really are always trying to be. And here's the problem. Until you get there, your identity is in working yourself to the bone to get to that. So my identity is in just hamster wheeling through life until I finally reach this level of, uh, you know, status that may or may not bring what I hope it does. And usually it doesn't because then I'm aiming for the next rung on the ladder. Our culture tries to tell us we can find our identity in our sexuality. That seems to be very per- pervasive in our culture. How you love, who you love, that is who is, that's the most important thing about you. How you live your life and how many people you sleep with to find the one, that's the thing. That's, culture makes that such an important thing, and it's just like one of the many pieces of the pie in life, but unfortunately, our culture has turned that into an identity thing, and it doesn't bring the satisfaction or what we hope that it will bring. Our, our society makes us think that acceptance is the key to identity. When everybody else likes me, then I know who I am. Well, there's a big problem with that, is that this person wants you to be like this, and that person wants you to be something totally different. So I can't please both of them, so now I don't know if I ever am going to have an identity. If I'm trying to please everybody on who they want me to be, and that's going to make me happy, I'm never going to be happy. Yet we have this pressure in our society, in our culture, to look for acceptance of others as the source of our identity. If I'm accepted, then I know who I'm supposed to be. And it's actually the opposite. When you know who you're supposed to be, the acceptance of those around you doesn't really seem to matter as much. Or you're more particular in whose acceptance actually matters. But what God does here, as we just read, he offers us true identity, lasting identity, a firm foundation for on which to base our identity. 
And what happens in Scripture, we'll look at a couple of examples. One thing that happens in the Bible, both Old and New Testament, as we'll see, is sometimes in a few key occasions, in a few key moments, in a few key people's lives, they have an identity change and also their name actually changes to signify that switch in their identity. One we talked about last week and is actually in this verse we just talked about. So it says, God is talking here, God who created you, O Jacob, God who formed you, O Israel. So Jacob and Israel, same guy. We talked about last week, Jacob and Esau, these twins in the book of Genesis, who even in the womb were twin brothers wrestling with each other on who's going to get out first, who's going to be born first. And Jacob is born second which means that his brother, being the eldest in this ancient Mideast culture, has certain privileges that he is not going to have. But Jacob's not satisfied with that. Jacob's kind of a con man. He's a con artist. So as we talked about last week, Jacob cheats his brother, tricks his brother out of his inheritance. He makes him pay this enormous price for a bowl of stew, and his brother, stupidly enough, gives into this demand. And then some months or years later, there's a spiritual blessing that goes to the oldest son, not Jacob. And then Jacob tricks his brother out of that as well. He becomes now the new patriarch. He's the new man of the family when he's not supposed to be. So Jacob is a me first guy. Jacob is a selfish guy. Jacob loves him some Jacob, okay, to put it, to put it that way. So that's who Jacob is. That's his identity, So he's running, his brother finds out he's been tricked and stolen from all these things by his brother. He chases after him to kill him for over 20 years. And while Jacob's running, a lot of things happen, but one thing changes the course of his life and the course of of many lives after him. Jacob has an encounter with God. So as we said, Jacob and his brother would wrestle, even, even in the womb they wrestled. As brothers, I'm sure they would wrestle. And Jacob would always probably lose because he's the younger, scrawnier sibling. Okay? He's always going to get beaten, pinned by his older brother. Well, he find, as he's out in the middle of nowhere, hiding from his brother, this random dude just appears out of nowhere. And he basically challenges him to a wrestling match. And Jacob's like, I've done this before. Let me see if I can do it again. So he wrestles with this guy and wrestles with the guy. And the guy actually pins him down and dislocates his hip from his socket. And he's like, okay, have you had enough? And Jacob's like, I've had enough, you know, and pops it back in place. And so what he discovers from this encounter is this wasn't just any ordinary man he's been wrestling in the middle of nowhere. He discovers he just wrestled with God himself. And of course, God won. You know, it wouldn't, wouldn't be very cool if Jacob beat God in wrestling. That wouldn't be good for, for God's street cred, right? So Jacob loses this battle, but he gains something much more important. He gains a new identity. And it comes with a name change. His name was Jacob. It means heel grabber. It means supplanter. It means trickster. He's a con artist. Even his name indicates that's his identity. But God gives him a new name, and his name is now Israel. And that's where the nation of Israel then is named after, Jacob, the grandson of of Abraham. And so Jacob goes from a me-first guy to a nation builder. He matures through this experience with God. Everything about him changes. His outlook on life changes. His perspective changes. He's now about others instead of about himself all of the time. And so that is what God does for him. There's one example in the New Testament that we'll also talk about. And he's actually already a follower of Jesus. His name is Simon. He's one of the 12 disciples of Jesus. But Simon also has sort of this reputation for being kind of a hothead kind of being a loud mouth, kind of, he's kind of the kid in class that always wants to answer the question, even though he doesn't know the answer, so he can look smart, but then he gets the answer wrong most of the time. Peter has a case of foot-in-mouth disease, 
I mean, he literally like insert foot into mouth. He does this all the time. That's his identity. That's his reputation. But one day, Jesus is talking with his disciples, and they're having a conversation. He's trying to get kind of a, a view on what the, the culture is saying about him. What's the headline? You know, what's Twitter? What are, am I trending on Twitter, guys? That's what he's asking his dudes there in the circle. And he's like, who do people say, what, what do they say about me? Who do they think I am? And they say, well, you think they think you're a prophet, maybe even Elijah that's come actually back from heaven, like you're Elijah 2.0 kind of thing. And Jesus is like, okay, that's, that's kind of cool, you know. But then he asks them a more important question to his followers who have devoted their life to him. They say, well, who do you say that I am? What's your thought about me? And Peter being the guy that he is, is the first one to speak up. But this time, what he says is thought through. What he says is powerful. He says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Now, again, he's not trying to make a hot take here. I've heard rumors you're the Messiah. You're him. You got your, you know, did I get it right this time? Or he's not saying, you know, I've heard that you say something about God as your, your God's son. No, he's actually thought about this. He's considered the weight of the words that he are, is now saying. And even Jesus, in responding to him, says, hey, you couldn't just have thought of this on your own. God had to reveal this to you. Something different happened in that moment. And what Jesus does with Peter is the same thing God does with Jacob. He gives him a new name. So I've been saying Peter because that's what Jesus calls him because it's natural for me to say that. But Simon is how he's known. That is his name. But Jesus says, from now on, you'll be called Peter. And upon this rock, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And you'd say, well, yeah, I know that he goes from Simon to Peter's name, Simon, but what, what's the big deal? Well, the Greek word for rock that Jesus uses there is Petros or Petra. So he renames Simon Peter and says, upon this Petros, I will build my church. It's a play on words that we don't get in English. But Jesus is saying, upon this confession of faith that you've seen who I really am, You've not heard it from somebody else. God told you. God had to reveal this truth to you about who I am. No one could convince you or twist your arm to believe this. You had to believe it for yourself. And so because you have this new foundation of who I am, I'm giving a new foundation on who you are. So upon this rock, this profession of me being the Son of God, the Christ, the Savior, I'm going to build my church on that. And then, so Peter goes from being a hot-headed, opinionated guy to being an on-fire preacher. So several weeks after this account, uh, several weeks after Easter on the day of Pentecost, which we'll talk about, it's the first Sunday of June. We'll talk about that the first Sunday of June. Uh, we'll, we'll get there. Peter preaches his first ever sermon. Now, I remember my first sermon, I think. Um, it was like five minutes long, and it was probably not very good. And, but Peter, he, and, you know, it's like, yay, it's so cute. Stephen's preaching, you know. Uh, but I was probably like 10 years old or whatever. So Peter gets up there. He, his first, I'm so jealous. Sorry, Peter. Sorry, Jesus. Forgive me. Peter, his first sermon, 3,000 people come to faith in Christ on his first sermon. Like, wow, setting the bar high for the rest of your career here, Pete. You know, you're doing pretty good for yourself. But it all started with this identity change. The, the Peter, before, the Simon before this was a, was a coward, really. I mean, he, he ran from Jesus. He has kind of a second moment after the resurrection where really he's sort of infused with this, you're the next guy in line with Jesus. But it, really, this name change signifies that moment for him. He goes from shooting off, you know, from the hip, shooting off his mouth all the time to now just being on fire for Christ, preaching the gospel for Christ. They, God offers identity and God offers you an identity today. 
He offers a new identity. And with that, but wait, there's more. He also offers identity theft protection. Okay, it's built in to this identity. It's like, you know, a secondary sort of thing that kicks in automatically. And here's what I mean by that. Even people who are in Christ, that your identity is now founded upon the truth of who Christ is, the culture still comes at you all the time from every direction saying, no, 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 this is a better way to place your identity. This is a better thing in which to place your real trust because Jesus, you know, what if that's not true and what if he lets you down and what if it doesn't pan out and what if you get there and it's not what you thought it was? So these other things, we're still bombarded with those all the time. So Jesus offers a new identity and identity theft protection because we can ask, well, where is my identity? If it's in Christ, it's firmly placed. Where's my real value? It's not in my stuff or my status or if I'm accepted, it's in Christ. Maybe you even ask the question, am I enough? You are in Christ. Am I accepted? You are in Christ. Am I loved? You are in Christ. He offers identity. But there, there is actually more. So let's look at Isaiah 61 now for a, a couple of minutes. There's also another list here in Isaiah 61 of benefits of a, what we get in this redemption exchange. So let's look at this for a minute. So Isaiah 61, verse 1. The Spirit of the Sovereign Lord is on me because the Lord has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives, and release from darkness for the prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn and provide for those who grieve in Zion, to bestow on them a crown of beauty instead of ashes, the oil of joy instead of mourning, and a garment of praise instead of a spirit of despair. They will be called oaks of righteousness, a planting of the Lord for the display of his splendor. So there's three, we'll talk about this very quickly, there's three separate ways we have to view this text. There's three separate levels of context in which we have to look at what's going on here. So first, the immediate context of this scripture is the people of Israel are about to go into exile in Babylon. So they're about to be judged for turning from God and be under foreign occupation in Babylon and mistreated for a couple of generations or so. And so they know this is coming. They know that the impending doom, they're, they're going to pay the price for what they've done against God. He's going to judge them in this way. But what does Isaiah say here in, in Isaiah 61? He says there's a future beyond that. That's what he's saying. He's saying there's something that you can't, you're, all you're going to see is the pain, all you're going to see is the shame, all you're going to feel is the, the negative emotions here, but he's saying God has more for you ahead after this. He's saying this, all, all is not lost in this situation. That's the immediate context here for uh, Israel that's about to be exiled. There's also, I'd say this lightly, a short-term uh, context to this as well. Because what Isaiah is prophesying here in Isaiah 61 is the coming of the Messiah, the Savior of the Jewish people. He is telling you what this person will do. So a nation is looking for their future leader to rule with righteousness, to restore Israel's glory. And wouldn't you know it, about 700, so that's why I say short term, 700 years after Isaiah says this, Jesus arrives on the scene. And he claims to be the one Isaiah was talking about. And not even in like sort of a side way. He, so one, he goes into his local synagogue and it's his day to read the, the scripture of the day. He pulls out the scroll and wouldn't you know it, the scripture of the day is Isaiah 61. 
So Jesus takes the scroll and reads what we just read. He rolls the scroll back up and puts it back in its place. And then he says, this day, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Jesus is overtly claiming to be the Messiah that Isaiah prophesied about 700 years before. And the problem that we see with this Easter weekend between really the end of Thursday night before Sunday morning is not a lot of people bought that. Not many people said, oh yeah, that makes total sense. You fit that description perfectly, Jesus. Like you're a mighty warrior that's going to overthrow the Roman government and give us freedom. That's what, that, I can definitely tell you're that guy because he didn't do that at all. So there was disappointment, there was frustration with the people, and they ended up crucifying him basically for not meeting their expectations of who he claimed he was. But that's where we get to the third level of context here in Isaiah 61, is sort of this long-term context. What's really going on here that affects us even today is this offer that God makes. He offers us a new spiritual life that leads to a brand new life. And that seems redundant, but hang with me for a second. Let me give you a couple of examples of this as well from the Bible. A new spiritual experience, a new spiritual life that leads to a brand new life. So one example of of Jesus doing this is in Luke chapter 19. It's a story of a guy named Zacchaeus. Maybe you've heard of this guy. He was notorious for being a really short dude, okay? I'm not trying to, you know, I'm not trying to body shame anybody here, you know, but that's what the Bible says. He was a very short man, and it makes sense for this story. So in Luke 19, Jesus is coming through Zacchaeus' part of town, and Zacchaeus is a very wealthy tax collector, which means two things. It means, number one, he is a Jew working for the evil Roman government. So he is an outcast for that reason. He's a traitor. He's not a faithful brother of the faith, or he would not work for the evil empire, but he is. Secondly, uh, the way that he makes money and becomes, the Bible says, very wealthy is because he has a minimum amount to collect taxes for the government, but then he is going to collect more on top of what's required to pocket for himself. He gets, first of all, he works against his own people to take taxes from them to give to the government that they despise. And on top of that, he basically is a professional thief who steals from them to become wealthy himself. So Zacchaeus is not a very fun guy to be around. You don't want to, he's not going to be your BFF. But Jesus is coming through Zacchaeus's part of town, and he's trying, he's in the back of the line, and he's so short he can't see, but there's a tree here. And so he climbs up in the tree to kind of get a view of Jesus walking by. And Jesus sees him in the tree and knows him by name and calls him by name and says, Hey, Zach, I'm going to go to your house for dinner. I'm gonna, I mean, he invites himself over to Zacchaeus' house for dinner. So he goes to Zacchaeus' house, and basically, again, think about Zacchaeus for a second. He's an outcast. He's ostracized from society. Everyone hates him for who he is, his identity. No one approves. No one accepts him, but Jesus does. So much so that he will enter the house of this notorious sinner for a meal. He has a habit of doing that with a lot of different kinds of people, Jesus does. So he enters the house, and this moment changed the life of Zacchaeus forever. Because at this meal, Zacchaeus says, hey, hey, Jesus, you know what? Your acceptance of me is now my identity. So he basically quits his life of stealing from his neighbors and friends and says, I'm going to pay them back plus interest what I've stolen from them, and he leaves that life of sin. This moment of acceptance from Jesus was everything to Zacchaeus. 
So there's a common theme here with all, all three of these people that we've talked about, with what Jesus did to them, what God did in their lives that changed who they were and offered something to them. And here's, here's the thing that's connected to them. All of these people that we've talked about, the worst of them was exposed and, and forgiven. The worst of Jacob was exposed. God knew how terrible he was. God knew what a con man he was, and yet he forgave him and chose him anyway. He knew Simon's shortcomings. He knew his attitude problem. He knew that he wasn't maybe all the way bought in at that point. He didn't see everything the way he should. He didn't have everything figured out and worked out, and yet Jesus had already chosen him. And then after he makes this, has this aha, the light bulb moment, Jesus says, okay, now everything is going to change for you forever. Same thing with Zacchaeus here. Jesus knew, he knew him by name. He had to know his reputation. He knew what kind of line of work he was in. He knew that he was an outcast. He knew he did not fit in. He was not accepted. And yet Jesus invited himself into his life anyway. That's the same thing we see here. Let's look at another scripture from Isaiah to see how this is, is true for us as well. Isaiah 44, verse 22 says this. Isaiah 44, 22. God says, I have swept away your sins like a cloud. Have scattered your offenses like the morning mist. Oh, return to me, for I have paid the price to set you free. Again, Jesus offers us new spiritual life that leads to a new life. So what that means is it's a new way of living, a new way of behaving, a new way of thinking. Let's connect this back to Isaiah 61 here for just a second. Part of this exchange and redemption, again, I, notice what I didn't say. I didn't say Jesus offers you a better life. I said he offers you a new life. Not like improved and, you know, like 2.0, like brand new you. Like the old you is gone. There's a brand new you that Christ brings out of us. So a couple things here from Isaiah 61. It says that he brings liberty to the captives. He brings freedom to those that are bound. So let me ask you, what are those things that have you bound? What are those habits that you can't break? What are those sins or behaviors that as much as you try, the will, all the willpower in the world will not help you? Jesus offers liberty and freedom from those today. His resurrection makes that possible. And then Isaiah 61 also says that he offers beauty for ashes, the oil of joy for mourning. What are those mistakes that you just can't get over? What are those things that you've done that you beat yourself up over all the time? What type of shame maybe are you carrying? There's another story in the New Testament with Jesus. It's in John uh, chapter 8 or John chapter 4, and it's this woman who's been caught in the act of adultery. And she's taken out by the religious elites who catch her in the act. They throw her into the street and are ready to stone her because the law says to do so. She has now been publicly shamed, and she's about to be publicly executed because that's what the law requires. Well, Jesus just happens to be walking by in this moment. He sees what's going on, and they ask him, Okay, what should we do here? If you're a great teacher, Jesus, if you're the master, if you're the know-it-all, what should we do here? Shouldn't we stone her as the law requires? And Jesus gets down in the dirt, and he draw. I don't know what he's drawing. Maybe he's playing tic-tac-toe or whatever. He's basically just making some tension in the moment here. He's making them wait on that question. Should we stone this woman to death in the middle of the street? And Jesus says, if any of you are without sin, go ahead and cast the first stone. So the men obviously can't do that. So they have to all walk away, and now they are publicly shamed by Jesus instead of this woman being shamed. And then Jesus approaches the woman and says, where have all your accusers gone? And she kind of looks up, and she's like, I don't, they're gone. 
And Jesus says, well, neither do I condemn you. Go and leave your life of sin. So Jesus offers her new spiritual life and then offers her a new way of life. That's what we're talking about here. So, again, beauty for ashes. So those mistakes you can't get over, those things that you beat yourself up over, that shame that maybe you are carrying for things that you've done. Maybe there's things that you've done that you're so ashamed of you never told anyone about it. What Jesus offers you is not beating you up, not stoning you in the street, not condemning you. Jesus offers beauty from your mistakes. He can make something amazing from your mess. Jesus can replace your mourning and shame with joy, Isaiah 61 tells us. So what do we get in this exchange in redemption? We get a new secure identity in Christ, and we get a brand new life a second lease on life, a second chance in this life. We get freedom, forgiveness, beauty, and joy. That's a pretty good exchange, isn't it? It's a pretty good list, and that's just a few. That's just like hitting the highlights here of what Jesus offers us with this exchange. But here is the other side of that. It's not just that we get these things, but then what do we have to give? Remember, you have to hand over that coupon for it to be redeemed, right? To get the value from that piece of paper, you have to hand it over. So what do we give in this exchange? Let's go back to, we already read this verse, let's look at it again. Isaiah 44, 22. It says this, I have swept away your sins like a cloud. I've scattered your offenses like the morning mist. So that's what we get. Here's what we give. Oh, return to me, for I have paid the price to set you free. So what do we give, or what do we give as God offers us what he gives us? We simply offer him ourselves. That's, that's it. We offer him Ourselves. Let's look at, Jesus says it this way, Luke 9, 23. Jesus said this to a crowd. If any of you wants to be my follower, you must give up your own way, take up your own cross daily, and follow me. And every person that we've talked about from Scripture, even in the Old Testament, had to do that. Okay? Jacob had to get over himself and give himself to God. Peter had to get over himself and see Jesus for who he was. Zacchaeus had to give up his life of corruption and then follow Jesus. This adulterous woman had to give up her life of promiscuity and then follow Jesus. So we give him ourselves in this exchange. Now, let me be very clear with what I mean by that, okay? There is an exchange here, but I don't want you to misconstrue what I'm saying about the gift of salvation, okay? So we, let me just say this. We do not deserve forgiveness. It's a gift, We can't work for our salvation. Well, if I do all these things right, then I can be saved. No, salvation is a gift for imperfect you, for imperfect me. For a sinner like me, salvation is offered up front in this exchange. We don't earn God's acceptance. It's a gift, okay? But what we do is choose to then, in response to that, give ourselves over to God. The the offer is given first. We accept that, and then to redeem that offer, for us to be redeemed, we then give ourselves to God. And we do that out of, man, this way sounds way better than how I've been trying to live. Like, Like, this plan seems way better than the plan I've been trying to navigate my life to that leads to nothing but just shame, nothing but guilt, nothing but mistake ridden life, nothing but spinning my wheels. Like, that seems way, a way better offer to me. His path is better. Life with him is better, and it is. But it is a choice. One more verse as we begin to close is Matthew 16, 26. I'm going to read in two different translations. It says this in the NIV. Matthew 16, 26. 
Jesus says, What good will it be for someone to gain the whole world, yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? And then the New Living Translation says it this way, What do you benefit if you gain the whole world, but lose your own soul? Is anything worth more than your soul? So we, if we bring back this coupon idea, we have the same three options with our lives as we do with the coupon. Let's talk about it just for a second. You can hang on to that coupon, and it's not ever going to be redeemed. And you get no value from it, right? Well, I shouldn't say no value. If you look at most coupons, what are they worth? Like one-tenth of one cent. So you have to get ten of them to get a penny back. I have ten of these. Can I get a penny back? They probably look at you like you're crazy. Like, mm, you worked so hard for that penny. Yes, I'll have sympathy and pity on you and give you this penny. But without, if you hold on to it, there's no value in that. So let me just say this, like the one-tenth of one percent, every human ever created is created in the image of God. It's in Genesis chapter 1 from the very beginning. So we all have inherent value in that way. But if we hold on to our life and do things our way, our direction, my wisdom, my thoughts, my path, I, that, that full value is never fully unleashed in my life. So we can do that. We can hold on to it, but we don't get anything in exchange for that. The second option we have is we can try to find value in the wrong things. We get our identity stolen by something else. That's like if you try to go to the wrong store with the wrong coupon. Oh, yeah, this is not for this store. Oh, man, you know, how embarrassing is that right now? Um, or sometimes there's really fine print. You know, you can't buy these items with this coupon. You're like, okay, I get my 20% off. Oh, no, not that. You can't do it with that brand. Uh, I'm not paying full price. Forget that, you know. So sometimes we can do that with our lives. We still seek out our identity in the wrong things, and it's fruitless, and it's frustrating, and it ends in emptiness. But that's an option that we have. You can choose to do that with your life. The third option, though, is that we can choose to be redeemed. When we do that, when we say, okay, I'm going to accept all that God has for me, and in response, I'm going to give all I am to him, then the full value of who we are and who, what we're meant to do, what we're made to do, then is unleashed. It is then revealed to us who we truly are. It's saying yes to Jesus and experiencing things that I could never otherwise experience. Experience peace that he brings that I could never begin to manufacture myself experiencing joy even in darkness that I could never begin to understand apart from a life given over and redeemed by Christ. This, is, this redemption is a steal. It's worth the cost. It's worth the exchange. And here as we close is the power of Easter. So, so far you're like, I haven't talked about the resurrection. Here we go. You ready for this? So, the ultimate power of this is an Easter weekend. So, the redemption is on, is on Friday our redemption is purchased on Good Friday through the crucifixion of Jesus. Through him, through that action, through that moment, we have forgiveness and new life. But then on Sunday, when Christ rose from the dead, what he offers us then is hope. The resurrection is all about hope. That this life is not all that there is. That this sometimes crummy existence is not all there is. If you live your life in the pursuit of identity and anything other than Christ, you will, that's why you'll be disappointed. Because everything else fades. Everything else dies. Nothing else lasts. But Jesus rose from the dead to defeat death so we can put our hope in him. We can find our hope in him. We can find our identity in him. And we'll never be disappointed. We'll never be led astray. 
We'll never be like, oh, Jesus, you failed me. Well, that's never going to be something you ever say. Jesus failed me. He does not do that. He cannot do that. It's impossible for him to do that. So we live in Christ, we live for him, and then we get to live with him forever. That's the hope that Easter brings us. It'd be, it'd be different if Jesus died for our sins and then he stayed dead. I mean, that'd be great, but it, it'd just be like any other sort of myth. Like he did this good deed and sacrificed himself, but it kind of ends on a sad, sour note here. But that's not how the story of Jesus ends by design, on purpose. It's not just any other myth. It's not just a cool Bible story. It's not just a children's story. It actually happened. There were hundreds of people that were eyewitnesses to this event that changed the course of the world and can change the course of our lives. The hope of Easter is in the resurrection, and we can place our identity firmly in him. It's the greatest deal. It's the greatest payoff. It's the greatest trade-off. And so the question this Easter is, will you make that trade? Will you make that exchange? Will you choose to be redeemed? Let's pray. God, sometimes, you know, we, we hear this story of Jesus, and we hear the story of the crucifixion, we hear the story of Easter. Maybe it can kind of get old. Maybe it can, if we're honest, it can kind of get stale. I know that, I know that. But I pray that today it would mean something that, you gave up your life for a purpose. You offer new life to us. And then you rose, Jesus rose from the dead for a purpose, to show he was God, to show that he had all power, to show that if we place our identity in him, that's a good place to place our identity in. The one who can defeat death itself, it's a pretty solid exchange. The new life that you offer the freedom that you offer, the forgiveness that you offer. It may sound too good to be true, but it's not. We may think that we're beyond saving in the room. Well, you don't know what I've done. Jesus will save anyone from anything. That's the power of the cross. And then he rose from the dead. That is our ultimate hope. There may be some who would even say, you know, I'm pretty good. I'm a good person. I'm going to take my chances without him. And what will happen is we will spin our wheels and live our lives on an endless pursuit of happiness, peace, and joy that we'll never find apart from this life in Jesus. So I pray that today we would consider that exchange, consider the benefits of redemption, and then consider what it would mean if I gave my life to Jesus, if I put my hope in him, placed my trust in him, and found my identity in him. That could unlock so many amazing things, just a new aspect, a new level of our lives that we could not otherwise enjoy. So with heads bowed and eyes closed, maybe you are here today, maybe it's your first time, maybe it's your fifth time, maybe it's your 50th time, and, but maybe you've never made that exchange, you've heard about it, you've thought about it, you know about it, but maybe you're like, I am trying to live life on my own, and I am disappointed, and I am frustrated, and I am kind of afraid, and I am kind of lost, and I, I've got questions, I don't know what to do, or where to turn, or where to go. The answer is in Jesus. His death on the cross forgives you for any sin, any mistake you've ever made or committed or thought about making. And then his resurrection from the dead offers you ultimate hope that this is not all there is. There is life beyond your existence right now. There is hope beyond your hopelessness right now. There is peace beyond your insecurity right now. So maybe you're here today and you've never made that decision. I'm going to ask everyone in the room to repeat a simple prayer after me. And I want you to consider this exchange today as we pray this prayer. Consider this life that God offers you through Christ and, and consider giving him your life today. So let's pray this prayer together. Dear Jesus, today I confess 
that I am a sinner and I need a Savior. And that Savior is Jesus. Today I surrender to Jesus. I give him my sin and shame. I give him myself, my past, present, and future. Thank you, Jesus, for dying on the cross for my sin, for risking it all for me, and then resurrecting to offer me hope. Thank you for the new life that you offer. I receive that new life, and I give myself to you. In Jesus' name, amen.